Hello, and welcome to the michaelcrane.live podcast. The podcast is about entrepreneurship and tips for staying highly motivated to make a positive change in your life. Keep listening and follow the podcast to stay connected with the community at michaelcrane.live. So get comfy and enjoy today's conversation. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, Toby Freeman, on the podcast to talk about life after being a professional rugby player, playing for a number of clubs before retiring at the top of his game, playing for Premiership Rugby Club Harlequins. Welcome, Toby. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I must say, three months ago, I spoke to Toby. It was something along the lines of getting to know you session. And to be honest, from what I see and have read since, now I I realise what a humble, genuine guy you are. So it's so lovely to have you on the show, Toby. Uh, yeah, yeah. Flattery will get you everywhere. But yeah, you're very kind. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But before we get into the guts of the show, share with our listeners, what was the dream when you first picked up your rugby ball? When I first picked up a rugby ball, uh, yeah, the dream when I first picked up a rugby ball was just to learn how to play the game to be perfectly honest when I first I didn't have a clue I did not have a clue about rugby I just I was a young kid growing up in Cornwall I wanted to be a footballer I was very very keen to be a footballer but I was absolutely terrible I was not a I was by no means a prolific footballer I couldn't I couldn't get picked for any team I yeah tried my best and so started playing rugby and just I did that because it's what all my friends were doing and like any kid that falls into sport you do it because you've got friends that are doing it and you become better mates when you're playing sport with them but like it was it was strange I didn't start playing rugby until I was 13 13 years old 12 13 years old for my um my school team and then I basically got bullied for want of a better expression to go and join the local rugby club um uh, by well, my, one of my best mates' dads. And um, the dream back then, I just wanted to play local first-team rugby. I thought, right, if I can get picked for a school side, maybe play a bit of county rugby. And I would say, even then, I was like, look, my aspirations are just aspirations. Who says that as a 12-year-old? But my game my game plan, so to speak, was just to play for the local first team, um, which ended up doing as a 17, 18-year-old lad. Um but rugby was a funny, it was a funny journey. Like I, I wasn't very good. Honestly, I was just the big kid, but I wasn't getting picked for any county sides. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, even I was struggling to get picked for my college first team when I was playing 17, 18 years old. I remember training with five or six other lads in the second team, watching the first team lads. You're like, well, there's no game for you this week. And I was like, why, why are all my mates doing so well? And I'm, I'm sat here training with five or six lads in the rain whilst those ladders are inside because they don't have to train and stuff like that. But then it suddenly just clicked at 18, 18 years old. I suddenly started playing a little bit more first team rugby for my college, played a bit of senior rugby for my local club side. Um, and then, yeah, things just started to started to happen. And off I went to 
to university. And that's when my ambition with rugby started to set in a little bit more. But by no means did I pick the ball up as a, you know, much as many professional rugby players say nowadays, oh, I, I wanted to be a professional from the age of five, six. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I wanted to be a footballer and I wasn't good enough. <laughs> so it's really interesting. So what made the change? What made the change in your mind to say, I'm actually quite good at this? Was it the fact that now you were at university or was it the fact that you trained a lot harder? It wasn't the fact that I thought I was good enough. It's interesting. It's the fact I was told I wasn't and it it royally wound me up because there were a good amount of my mates left college and became there were eight or nine lads who signed professional contracts and I wasn't even in the in the picture nowhere near the picture so off I went to to university and it just so happened that the the professional club that I signed with in Exeter Chiefs they happened to be on a tour down in Cornwall and they happened to have a second team fixture against my local club side so this was before I was going to university I'd had a brief conversation with them and beforehand about going to university and seeing if I could get myself in to do some pre-season training. And then I played a game and then, yeah, then the conversation came in with the head coach at the time and off I went to university. And that's when I realized, right, I'm in a position where I could really take advantage of having a top class education, but also experiencing professional rugby at the same time and trying to get the balance right. But for me, I didn't really fully commit to the professional rugby side of things. I said, yes, I was contracted and yes, I was getting paid, but my mindset wasn't in commit everything to professional rugby. My mindset was get a top class degree and go and get your master's because I didn't know if rugby was going to be a thing for me. Like, you know, you could be an 18, 19 year old lad that could be a pad holder for the next five, six years. And I'm like, well, great for me, that's not a career. I'd, I'd rather have make sure that I had a backup plan. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I played a I played a handful of games. I then then began my very long journey through professional rugby, which I'm sure we'll explore a little bit more as we chat here. So, just trying to get into the mind's eye about you wanted your top notch education, and where did the fact that you were getting better at being a rugby player? change things for you? I think it's once I realized that it could be a career and once I realized that I could actually have a large proportion of my working life playing sport. Let's be honest, there's a lot of people that would love that. And I don't, I don't pretend I wasn't very privileged to do that for as long as I did. I was getting paid to go to the gym, to hang around with my mates, drinking coffee and to chuck a rugby ball around. It's a pretty a pretty good deal. Let's let's be honest with it. And I'm not pretending it's it's anything but that. Um, and once I realised I could do that, then yeah, I decided to really give it some give, put, give it the effort it needed. But for me, it was going abroad. And I said, this is what we'll get into it now. I ended up playing professionally in Spain for two years when I graduated from university. Exeter decided they weren't going to keep me, and that was a bit of a knock, to be honest, because Exeter went up into the Premiership that year, and I thought, oh. Well, that's the end of my professional rugby dream. And then I had a team in Spain get in touch and they said, oh, look, do you want to come over? I was 22 years old. I was like, yeah, why not? Why not go abroad and play 
in the north. Like, and it was such a cool pocket that I was living in in Spain. It was up in the Basque country. So we were right in a little hotbed because we're only 30 minutes from Biarritz, which at the time they were one of the giants of European rugby. And there was a real pocket of rugby fanatics up there. And I just had two years really, really just playing and enjoying myself. And then it was through playing like I was playing over in Spain that then got the attention to bring me back to the um, to the English leagues. But it's once I realised that actually this is a pretty fun life. I've experienced two years playing abroad in Spain. I've learned a language. I've gone somewhere where I couldn't speak a word <laughs> before I went out there. And then I thought, right, you're you've had enough interest to be pulled back to the English leagues where you come from, really put some effort in here. So I did. And I then decided, right, I was 25, 25 years old when I came back from Spain. And I thought, right, my goal is now to get to the top flight. How long is it going to take me? Took a while. <laughs> did. It took, I were, it took eight years, eight more years of playing championship rugby before I got signed by Harlequins. But you just keep, you keep trucking. Like, that's it. I would always have those conversations towards the end of the season where your agent would get in touch and you'd have, oh, such and such is interested and it would never amount to anything. And then finally it did. When I was 32, 32 years old, I got signed. Um, and that was the, that was the box. That was the box I needed to tick just to show I could get to that level. Was that a dream? Always a dream for you to play for Harley Quinns because we've all heard of Harlequins Rugby Club. Uh, I tell you, Rachel tell you my reaction when I realised that finally I was having a conversation with a Premiership club, not just uh, an eight, my agent going, oh, such and such is interested. To have a club pick up the phone and to reach out was, it's hard to put into words when you want something for so long and you're working towards something. Bearing in mind, you know, I was 32 years old. I was like, am I coming towards the end of my playing days? You think, right. I've given this the best effort I can give it. Maybe I'm just not at that level. And then when the phone went, yeah, it was it's a it, it was a special, it was a very special experience. It was because it meant that right, I I bloody knew I could do this. <laughs> I knew if I just was stubborn enough for long enough, then I'd be able to get up to that level, which was and that did become my ambition. It became it's more I just wanted to prove that I'd seen so many other players do it. And you hold, you know, you hold yourself in regard against other people you've seen go before you. And like, right, if they're doing it, why can't I? Um, and that's how that's how we end up coming to pass. It's a really interesting point you make when you say the words, when you're stubborn enough for long enough, the dream becomes reality. I, well, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't, like nothing happens overnight. Let's be honest. Like it, regardless of what you're doing, you're not going to, I didn't suddenly at 12 years old say I'm going to be a premiership rugby player. Like my only ambition at 12 was to play for my local first team. I can now, you know, I've changed careers. I'm not going to become an overnight success in my new career. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't like you have to, you have to put in for me, you know, it's the grind. You have to go to the grind. You have to put in the hard yards and it's worth doing it because stuff will come out the other end. But it doesn't happen overnight. And there's plenty of people that have to go through it and don't get to those levels. And, you know, it doesn't happen for everyone. It's just, for me, it's, yeah, maybe it's stubbornness, maybe it's work ethic, whatever. Maybe stubbornness comes as a result of my work ethic. Who knows? But yeah, it certainly didn't come overnight for me. 
there's a lot of ingredients actually that goes into the mix when we're talking about achieving what you want to do really in life. And, you know, there are no overnight successes, let me tell you. You know, even Liz Taylor, the famous actress, said it took her 20 years to become an overnight success. It does take passion. It takes perseverance and a whole lot of perspiration and you know, the other thing it takes that I've just realized in the last 10 years since running my business is consistently doing the boring stuff. Not necessarily all boring, but you see, there's a simple philosophy that I follow. Consistent routines beat talent every time when talent doesn't show up. Yeah. And I said, you know, this is interesting because I, I said, I still coach um, and I play for a, a local rugby club and there's another, there's a couple of guys there that have played um, a high level of rugby as well. And it's explaining to the lads that like, I wasn't a superstar playing at the level I played at this other lad that I played with wasn't a superstar, but you learn how to do the basics. Well, all you need to be successful, you need to learn what your role is do that to the best of your ability and not worry about all the external factors because you can't control what's going on outside of your remit. You can certainly try. Everyone does, but let's be honest. And it's that old adage of control the controllables. Well, if something's outside of your control, why let it bother you? And, and, and it's interesting. And it's Rach always brings me back down with this when I get frustrated, especially when I was transitioning at the start of my new career after rugby, I would get very frustrated very easily. She was like, no, no, just take what you did and transfer it to what you're doing now. It doesn't happen overnight. You need to, and for me, it was figuring out, right, what is the hard work in this role? What is going to the grind? What is what I had as a routine in rugby? How do I bring that into financial advice? And it's figuring out how it translates one into the other. And it's, it's more straightforward than you think. It is more straightforward than you think. It's actually relatively quite simple stuff. Yeah. I always say this is simple. It's not rocket science because we're not planning to go up to the moon. Yeah. So yeah. providing you keep the stuff simple and you follow a path, you'll always get where you want to go. Simple, but it's not easy. That's the key. It's simple, but it's not easy. And it's not, that, that's it. And we say this from an entrepreneur's point of view. It's not for everyone. And there's plenty of people that would sooner, much sooner take a salary and just turn up and show up and that's it. But it's not, for me, that never once crossed my mind. It's not in my mindset. I'm like, look, I want to figure out how I'm going to get up to the top of what I'm doing now in this new industry. And I need to figure out, right, this is how you do it. This is the hard work that's required. And understanding that it doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't. Some people may pretend that it does, but let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, people paint different pictures, don't they, compared to what's actually going on in the real world. But we all wish it did happen. Yeah, overnight. don't we just? <laughs> don't but get like me wrong. You say, well, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. You just need to stay in the game long enough for it to happen. Yeah. But Toby, you must have met some really, really amazing coaches, leaders playing rugby on the pitch. Yeah. What was that like? That was, for me, it's, it helped form who I became as not only a rugby player, but as someone that's now taken those traits 
into my working life because I'd come across, of course, you know, you come across arrogant rugby players, you come across humble rugby players, you come across good leaders, you come across poor leaders. And it was for me seeing, right, how do people cope under pressure? How do, keep, how do people cope when the light is being shone on them? How do they cope when they're on a losing? For, for me, how do people react when they're in a losing streak? Because I then think, well, a losing streak is the same as having a run of not bringing in business. And you think, well, what do you do when you're really backs against the wall? You stick to your process. You stick to what you do well. You don't start trying to change everything. You don't rewrite everything. If, if there are shining improvements to be made, then some people have to make that decision. And sometimes it's a bold decision to go, right, we do need to. And leaders would do that. And I would see that. And then I developed into this in a leadership role when I was playing. I'm like, oh, actually, what we had planned isn't quite working. Let's move it to a new mindset. And you can do it, but it's not. You don't always want to be a huge, for me, good leadership isn't just about reacting to situations. It's making sure you react in a positive manner, but making sure you know how to communicate it to the people around you, making sure you stick to your routine, your processes. But yeah, the number of leaders and good coaches I came across really helped turn me into now the working man that I am outside of rugby. Would you say you become more self-aware or are you more of a team-aware type of person? No, I became incredibly self-aware. I mean, I'm incredibly conscious of how I now come across to people, I think. And this is, again, with now my new role, I'm very conscious that my responsibility predominantly lies in making people feel comfortable when they're speaking with me, because that is a, a huge part of my job is getting people in a position where they're they're more than comfortable to discuss not just their finances. We're talking about people's entire lives and people will tell me a lot more than just their finances when I'm sat down speaking with them. And I think that came from, in my rugby days, you can be a leader in a leadership position, but you can become very much, well, this is how we're doing it. This is why we're going to do it. Buck up, get on board. And it doesn't, for me, it doesn't, like I was never a fan of people that try to lead that way, you'd always feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm taking this a little bit into my coaching role as well. I'm like, how do I come across to this young group of players? Am I, am I giving them the best tools to make sure that they can then succeed with rugby? But, um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting. Before we move on to life after being a professional rugby player, what was your best moment in your rugby career? Ah, uh, there's two. It's it's hard not to. I would never take away from the fact that playing Heineken Cup rugby for Harlequins was the pinnacle of my career. And bearing in mind, I only got to play just shy of 20 minutes. And for me, I was like, that count for me. I I got there. I played at that level, and that was the box ticked for me. I was like, that is the level. Perfect. I wanted to get there, but then winning a cup final in Spain in front of 11,000 people when about 9,000 of them have followed us from the village that we were living in and you're scoring a couple of tries in a cup final and you're given man of the match. And yeah, that was a cool, that was a very cool moment because we've gone back to the village and you've got a whole parade up to the plaza in the middle of the town. And yeah, what a very cool experience. I still have really fond memories of that cup final, really, because it's the first time the club ever got to a cup final. So it's kind of too, it's knowing that, had I not gone to Spain, then I wouldn't have been able to reboot my 
professional career, I wouldn't have done. Like, I, chances are I would have moved home and I probably wouldn't have played professional rugby. But then as a result of what I did there, it then led on to greater things and I got to go and play at the top level with Harlequins. So, yeah, two pretty cool moments. Right. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Moving on to life after rugby. Most people stay in a career for the whole of their working life. But naturally, well, it's not one that I've gone down, uh, the path that I've gone down, but for you in your professional rugby career, you knew that was going to come to an end. Yeah. At what age did that dawn on you? And what was the thought process that you went through? The change that you were going to have to adapt and adopt that's going to work for you and your family? So I, it's interesting. I met Rach, I was 25, 26 years old when I met my wife. Um, and she wasn't my wife at the time. Obviously, I didn't meet her. And then a day later, marry me. Um, but Never she happens that way, by the no. way. Just like business, <laughs> just like any career. So I'm told, you play the long game. <laughs> um, but Rach said to me when, um, when we first started seeing each other, she's like, oh, what's the plan after rugby? And me as a 26-year-old, I was, well, here come the shutters. I'm not having that conversation. Don't be, don't be so silly. You start getting towards 29, well, I was 29, 30. And I was playing for um, a team down in Cornwall. And a good friend of mine rang me up. And he, I played with him at Nottingham. And he said, look, I've moved into a new career in financial advice. And I think you should give this some thought. Because I think it would suit you to a T. And he kind of sowed the little seed of interest in me. I was like, okay, how, how do I explore that? And it, I explored a number of different opportunities, um, options after, after rugby. It wasn't just financial advice at the time. But then I started thinking, right, how am I going to get into this really? Where, what route do I take? And then lo and behold, I signed for Harlequins and I'm suddenly thrown into a position where I'm not down in the furthest southerly point of England, living down in Newland, which is where I was living in Cornwall. I'm suddenly living 20 minutes away from London. And I thought, right, give this some thought. And strike while the iron's hot. Having Being at a club like Harlequins and going into the city, it does carry its weight. And it's not saying that the only reason I got to speak to people is because I was at Harlequins, but it certainly was a door opener because it, it, it does, it generates interest with people. People want to go, oh, what's it like being at Harlequins? What's it like being a professional rugby player? Um, and don't get me wrong, I met some a number of advisors that I didn't particularly, <laughs> didn't, didn't really get on with. There were some people I was being introduced to and I just thought, oh, this isn't quite the industry for me. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and then... Yeah, I met one of the directors at the practice I currently work with and he just got what I was going to go through. He himself had a 15-year career playing professional rugby. He was in the premiership for his whole career. He played for England. And he said, I know what you're going to go through. And Bernard, I'd already started studying at this point. I'd started studying for the exams needed because you need to pass six exams to then become qualified as a financial advisor. So I'd, I'd started this process whilst I was playing. And then the lockdown came in. And I'd had this conversation with the director two weeks before and I just rang him up saying, look, how serious were you about? Because he said to me, look, I've just sat down with you as a complete stranger in this coffee house and I've told you everything. And he's like, there's a skill in what you've just done with me. And he said, and I've been doing this job for a number of years. He's like, if you can do that with people and make them feel that comfortable, 
you're going to make a very good financial advisor. I said, that's all good and well, but I still need to know how to get into the industry. So I just rang him up and said, look, how serious were you? And then, yeah, here, here I am two years, two years down the line working alongside him at a successful practice and thoroughly enjoying it. But it was knowing that I think had I, had I always been playing premiership rugby, I maybe would have had a different mindset and I maybe would have thought that, well, I'll get a job because I'm at the top flight and someone somewhere will offer me a job. And that does happen, but that happens for maybe one in 500 lads. Let's be honest. Like, There's not going to be many lads that just walk into jobs because they're coming out of a premiership rugby club. But I'd always been in the championship. I'd been in the second tier. So I knew that I hadn't earned enough money to just retire and stop at 33. But I also knew that I would need to find a career. Like that's there's... I think there's a statistic that the RPA released that 50% of professional rugby players within five years of retirement fall on financial hardship because they haven't got a path. They haven't got anywhere to go. They don't, they don't know where to go. And I thought, well, I'd be damned if that's, if I'm going to fall into that statistic, I'm going to go and make sure that I have a path to follow. And yeah, this one was presented to me. And again, it's, it's, it's very fitting that the skill set I got from rugby has transferred itself nicely into financial advice. Do you think the fact that you've just shared that within five years, uh, there are a number of professional rugby players that fall on hardship was one of the reasons why you went into the finance industry to share advice? Yeah. And you know what? I'm very conscious of not selling it to rugby players. I, because you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy who goes, oh, look, I know. yeah, that's a statistic. And it is a statistic and that's a fact. But I would never, I don't sit there if a rugby player wants to come and speak to me and I go, well, first and foremost, let's talk about the fact that when you, you would, that's not the way you talk to people. It's just going, look, I understand what professional rugby is. I understand careers are short. Let's make sure there's a plan in place. Even if it's, even if it's just me talking about my experience of moving from professional sport into a new career. Cause I, I've done that. I've done that with a number of players the last six months. People have been reaching out to me saying, Oh, look, how did you actually get into an industry? How did you do this after rugby? And I'm more than happy to have the conversation. And that doesn't come to me trying to make, get business from rugby players. That comes to me having what I had for me. People gave me a helping hand. People gave me advice of how the industry worked, how I got into this career. And I'm more than happy to pass that on to other not just rugby players, any athlete, any athlete, male or female that is going through it. It's, I think the key, the key message is life is okay after professional sport. It is, but it's making sure that you are in control of your own destiny. Don't just wait for something to be handed to you because, you know, there's no guarantees in life, are there? There's no guarantee a job's just going to fall in your lap. You know, it's amazing how many conversations I have with people about pensions and wealth planning. And they say to me, well, I haven't got a pension. I've got nothing reserved for my retirement years. Were you taught the art of financial management when you were growing up, Toby? Or is this a newfound love because it's the industry that you're in now? I tell you what it was. It was the fact that as a professional rugby player, we weren't getting paid great deals of money. 
and you had to be, for me anyway, I was like, right, you need to make sure that you understand what you're doing with your money month on month. And that's, and that's where it kept, like, I was always all right at that. And it, call it being shrewd with your money, call it being intelligent with your money. I just always thought, well, I know exactly what's coming in. I know exactly what's going out. I know how to budget transpired that's <laughs> again was a handy thing to learn during my playing days because yeah there's an, a, that interesting point of people saying oh i don't have this or i'm not prepared it's not my i would never sit there and start judging people for what they have and what they haven't done it's it's as simple as finding out right let's get a picture of where we are right now and let's talk about where you want to be and then we can start bridging the gap between the two. It's not just a case of me sitting there and trying to scare people going, okay, what's your plan for retirement? Oh, I'm going to talk over you. You haven't got a plan for retirement. Well, you should be putting this into your pension. Why aren't you putting this into your pension? And by the way, have you discussed insurance? No, you haven't. Well, I'm going to make you feel... Who who wants to be spoken to like that? I'm a financial advisor, but actually I'm focusing on people's financial well-being. And by talking about people's well-being, it's making sure we understand where they want to be and how I can help to get them there is the real key to what I'm doing. When you talk about where they want to be, what does that look like for the majority of your clients right now? It's understanding that retirement isn't something to be scared of. I think retirement planning is a, is a big part of what I end up talking about with, with clients. And you say to people, look, when do you want to retire? And they go, oh, I'm going to have to work my whole life. Is it, is it would be a classic go-to or, or I don't know because I don't know what I've got. I'm like, well, let's think about this. Retirement isn't what it used to be. It's not retire at 60, retire at 65, enjoy 10 years, done. It's not the case. Retirement can be 20, 30 years of life. Let's actually flip it on its head and go, how can we make sure you're going to enjoy that period of your life? to its maximum. What can we do right now to make sure that that isn't something that you're going to not want to arrive at? Let's make sure you arrive there with a plan in place to make sure that you're comfortable, make sure you can enjoy it, but also address what needs to be addressed in the meantime, because you still want to enjoy living in the moment. Not everyone is going to go, right, I will just put a plan in place and I will make sure that when I get to 65, I am comfortable. I'm like, well, what about when you're going through your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your early 20s? Let's make sure that you're still enjoying life. It's not a case of just going, no, we will just focus on your retirement. We still focus on the here and now. And that's my responsibility. I take away the stresses of people's financial well-being so they can enjoy what they're doing in the moment. But keeping an eye on what's coming next, I think, is the best way to look at it. You know, certainly from my perspective, uh, my mum and dad worked until a very late age. So they didn't have much financial management or wealth planning. And I think from the conversations I have with people, this also is true for them. So at what age do you think we should be thinking about this, which is going to have a good impact on our later years, is there an earlier, uh, early is best, I know, but it, you know, where do we go with that? Yeah. The, uh, and that's, and that sounds like a throwaway comment, but it's true. The earlier you start, the better. And that's a fact because compounding, compound growth is going to kick in. And that's, that's the first thing to understand the early, but it, it does, it's not as straightforward as going, 
right, you're in your early 20s, let's start talking about pensions. That's not what I'm saying. It's financial education, I think, is the key here. And that's not something that is really, think about in this country, how often people talk about their finances and are comfortable talking about their finances. It's not really, it's a bit of a taboo in this country. If you say to someone, okay, let's talk about your income. What do you earn? Oh, and that's it. And people will go, well, why, why, why are we talking about that? I'm like, because we need to talk about that. But this all comes back to financial education. It's understanding how this works, the benefit of having a pension in place, the benefit of having certain insurances in place, the benefit of understanding how to budget, how you understand what you're spending on a monthly basis. Even if if nothing else, having this conversation with people, they go, oh, well, okay, that's what I'm spending each month. And this is actually what I've got left over. But what am I doing with that leftover money? That, again, becomes part of the conversation. So going back what, to what you asked, it's it's never too early to start, but it's not saying that you need to force this on people. I think just making sure that financial education is made a bit more prevalent and people understand the benefit of financial management going forward, I think is the key. I totally, totally agree. You know, I had a conversation with my friend, really good friend, uh, last year sometime, actually. And he worked for a national bank all his life, for about 35 years. And he said to me recently, he said, you know what, Michael, I just joined the bank at the age of 16 or 17 or whatever age it was. And his boss called him into his office. And his boss said, sit down there, son, sign this bit of paper. And this signature will be the best signature you've ever, ever, ever written down on paper. And he looked at his boss to think, oh, really? What's that? And his boss said, that's your pension, son. Anyway, my friend is at the age now where he's drawing on his pension. And he's living on that pension. Because you're right, Toby, compound interest kicked in. And it's kicking in now faster than it did in the first 20 years of the maturity of that investment. But you know the point and the interesting question I want to ask you, if my parents and parents in general were not taught the art of financial management at school, how the hell are they going to pass it on to me, you, our listeners? So what are we doing wrong from an early age? Oh, wow. There we go. The, the million dollar question. Um, I think it's, it's something that we need to, how to word this? It's, it's making sure, first of all, there's an appreciation of where money comes from. Okay. And understanding that, yes, money is earned, money is saved, money is used in a certain way. And I think if, if there's an appreciation within a younger generation of where money comes from and actually and that's that sounds like i'm being flippant towards younger generation because that's not that's not the case i understand exactly how hard it is for example for my generation to try and get on the property ladder it's an it's a hard thing to do to understand right this is what i'm going to pay each month this is what i need to save each month but it's just getting a greater awareness of what financial education is and i think getting people more comfortable talking about it because it's one of those like again it's removing that taboo and if people don't understand something because i come across so a number of people and i put myself in this bracket a few years ago 
who didn't understand enough about financial services. But now I'm in a position where I can have very open conversations with people and it's making sure that I never belittle anyone. I don't try and make people feel like they don't know what they're talking about or they don't understand what they're talking about. I just go, look, well, this is what I know. I can share that with you. Now you know it. <laughs> and it's, it's not go on, go forth and share this knowledge, <laughs> but it's just making sure there is a greater awareness of the benefits of financial education and how that can be shared with each other, I think is the key. Sounds like you are a great financial advisor, Toby. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. But when your clients come in to see you, what is the number one or what is it that you're finding you're having to share with people the most about their wealth creation, their financial planning uh, into later life? So what is the one thing that you're finding you're sharing the most to your clients? Big, a big talking point that I'm coming across a lot is people move jobs. And this is the key. People will change jobs. Like it's the average person is going to, I think I found a stat a few, a couple of months ago. It's every four years, someone is going to move employers. You have a workplace scheme that is left behind you. And that's the key. And it's understanding that, well, you've got a pension pot from this period of employment. You've then changed again. There's another, and people go, oh, where do, where do they go? Where, where are my previous pensions? I'm like, that's where the conversation comes in of going, well, why don't we go and look where they are, understand if it would be viable consolidating? Because that becomes such a, a talking point for people going, well, it's your retirement. That's your pension pot that's sat at X, Y, Z. And then you pop it into, you, if the option is suitable, you can consolidate. And then comes the question of, right, well, how are you then invested moving forward? And how it, you're now in control you're now moving towards your retirement with a plan in mind, not just going blindly into the unknown going, oh, well, my state pension will kick in and I'm sure I've got a pension somewhere. And that's not, and that's not saying people have to have the conversation about understanding where their pensions are because it's not always the case. You've got people who are, for example, self-employed their entire life, but then comes the point of, well, how are you planning for retirement? How are you going to make sure that you're comfortable in retirement? And especially then, well, what about the meantime? Because especially if you're self-employed, well, who looks after you if you can't work? For example, do you have any insurances in place if you can't work? Because it's not the same benefit of being employed and having, for example, income protection from a, from your employer, for example. So, But the big talking point, again, comes into people looking at, oh, I didn't realize I had five or six pensions at X, Y, and Z. Is it something we can look at? And that's the key. It's people going, is that something you can help with? And that's the perfect question. That's, it's, is that something you can help with is the, the perfect question for me to be asked because I love turning around to someone and going, yes, I can help you with that because that's all, that's all I want to do. That's the joy of what I'm doing. First of all, you hear very interesting stories on a day-to-day -day basis, which is one of the best parts of the job because you go away from the financial planning and you look at people's life planning and people tell you so much about their lives but only if we get the relationship right at the start. If I just sat, if I just sat there trying to sell financial service products to people, no one's going to want to have a conversation with me. They're going to want to go, get out, you're a salesman, I don't want to talk to you. This is so much more than that. It's building a relationship with someone to understand what they love about their life and how we can make sure that stays part of it moving forward once they slow down from work. 
Am I right in thinking that if people change jobs every four years, over a period of, say, 40 years, they potentially could have 10 different pension pots? The option isn't always there, but there is the option to transfer to new, bring your old pension scheme to your new one, but not many people would do it. Not many people are aware that that's an option. Not all providers are going to let that happen. But yeah, there could be a case where you come across someone who's got six, seven, eight pension pots sat in various places and you go, right, well, let's go see what they're worth and see how they're invested and see if it's a a viable option for you. How would people go about finding where those pension pots are sitting, being that some people may have just forgotten that they even worked for this company if they only had been there a couple of years and it's 30, 40 years further down the line? The key, yeah, that's the key. It's first of all, remember, some people, I, I, I say this, I'm not, I'm not a wizard. I can't just, I can't magic a pension scheme out of nowhere. It certainly helps with a starting point of saying, where was your, where were you employed? And for what period were you employed? Because then we can go off, we can go through my practice of going to look at some pension tracing facilities, making sure we look at where they may have been invested, who the scheme administrators are, and there's a whole process to go through, but it's just, the starting point is really give me something to work with. Don't just go, I've had eight employers, where are my pension bots? I'm like, okay, <laughs> we, need a, we need to have a starting point. But it's even as simple as going on the government website and saying government tracing, you can do it yourself. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but you can go off and look from your, pre- or just ring up your previous employer and say, where's my previous pension scheme? Who's it with? And then go from there. As we bring this podcast show to an end today, Toby, what one piece of advice do you give your clients and would you like to share with our listeners? And by the way, I think the last bit of advice was great. I met a friend recently who just cashed in a pension that he had completely forgot about. And and he only found out who it was with via chance. I think that is so, so, so wrong to leave this to chance. He was gobsmacked by the amount of money just sitting there compounding over time. So apart from that one bit of advice, is there one other great bit of advice you'd like to share with our listeners today? I quite like what you've just said there, because I do say that a lot myself about not leaving your financial future to chance. But I think that's, again, if I said that to every client I spoke to, it sounds like a throwaway comment. It sounds like a, a tagline or a sales line. I think the key that I get across to people is this financial plan is yours and it's going to be tailored to you. There's no right or wrong way to do this, to have this conversation. It's understanding that I'm going to get to know you as an individual. And once I know you, that's when I will go off and I will look at putting in place a recommendation for you. And that that may not be what everyone expects to hear. It's certainly met with um, with differing reactions and people go, oh, this isn't what I thought a financial advisor was going to do. But that I love hearing that because Financial advice is not about sitting there and just selling products and selling services to people. It's far more. It's about building a relationship with the person that you're sat in front of. And then going back to the fact that everyone's plan is going to be different. This is going to be tailored to you. There is no right or wrong way for us to address this is the key. 
And how can people have a conversation with you, Toby? I mean, I'd, I'd say 80% of my conversations currently are done are done via Zoom. <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest. But find me find me on, on LinkedIn, I guess is the easiest way to do it rather than me handing out personal details on a on a podcast. But yeah, if you just pop pop my name into LinkedIn, I'm sure I'm sure you'll you'll see you'll see my face pop up as a financial advisor. Um, and sure, I'd love to love to connect with a few people and have a have a chat about finances going forward. And thank you so much for your time today, Toby. I've had fun. I hope our listeners have too. No, oh, thank you, Michael. Honestly, it's been a pleasure. It's really I I enjoy being able to talk about my my past rugby days, and also it's a pleasure talking about my new career in financial advice. So thank you, thank you very much. Today's show has been sponsored by www.teameasycrane.co.uk. We help you build your business and grow recurring profits. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have a business story to share, please reach out and contact us on michael at michaelcrane.live. To hear more stories from entrepreneurs and business leaders, make sure you hit the subscribe button on iTunes and Spotify so you never miss an episode. We look forward to having you back for our next podcast show. Thank you.